and Bendy. Hello and welcome to Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art, the podcast they could not stop, although they could sometimes delay it, as we'll see. First though, I'm Valdemar Inushtrak, the art critic of the Sunday Times, although some people call me Waldy. Not often, I admit, but it does happen. Bendy, however, is always Bendy. When people see him in the street, they don't shout, you must be Bendor Grosvenor, the famous art historian and TV personality. No, they holler, look, it's Bendy. Don't they, Bendy? They come up and say, you're Waldemar's psychic, aren't you? And I say, yes, I'm his studio assistant. I, I am the Remedius Van Leemput to his Van Dyke. I mix his paints. I pounce his cartoons. I am fit only to admire him and look on at his brilliance. Well, for someone in that role, you don't have to talk a lot. Blimey. Um, can, I, can I get in and say, uh, get a word in edgeways or not? <laughs> you can. Although the last 13 episodes of this, I've been honing my get my word in edgeways skills to a T. <laughs> well, you're going to need them today because we have got a very busy podcast. I mean, look, we've got stolen pictures. We've got the Nazis. Um, we've got a heap of old musical instruments that someone's painted. The question is why? And of course, in the week when the museums began to reopen at last, we'll be telling you a bit about going around them, where you go, what you do and what you see. And all that information, remember, is on the Sunday Times website devoted to this podcast. It's a goldmine of illustrations and facts. So all that's coming up. But first, it's time again for that thing we all love, a significant date. Dodgy, 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 anniversary. That's right, it's dodgy anniversary time, where we indulge in that time-honoured art world pastime of finding a dodgy peg for something and then talking about it. So, Bendor, did you know that 323 years ago, 323, a little baby was born in London called William Hogarth? Now, that's a big reason to celebrate, isn't it? I agree, absolutely. And, you know, I'm not sure if a little baby has cast a larger shadow over British art, because I was thinking about this. I think, I think we can make a case that William Hogarth was the greatest British artist that ever was. Now, bear me out, we might discuss whether he was a good painter or not. And I know we started our podcast series by arguing that Leonardo da Vinci was a great artist, a great genius, but perhaps not a great painter. I think there's a distinction. And I think we can make a claim for Hogarth being the greatest British artist there ever was. Because after all, which other British artist has an adjective? Hogarth has Hogarthian. Now, you can't say that about anybody else, I don't think. We can, you can. William Dobson, Dobsonian, <laughs> is a, an adjective that I love to fling around and, and often off. have, indeed. Dobsonian, meaning critical to an understanding of the Civil War, meaning foursquare, meaning brilliant. Dobsonian is, a, is, a, is an excellent adjective to use in art. Well, I think if we were to look that up in the Art Historical Dictionary of Etymology, it would go all the way back to... Waldemar Januszczak and his Dobson obsession. Um, no, Hogarth, Hogarthian. I mean, what, a, what an extraordinary genius. His, his life story itself is a great adventure, but 
just think of how many parameters he set that dictate how British art unfolds in the following centuries. I mean, he's the first person really to put humor in paintings, isn't he? He's the first person to really uh, make a fortune out of uh, disseminating prints. Uh, he even changes the law to benefit artists. He gets this, the Hogarth Act, which creates for the first time um, copyright protections for artists. Um, I mean, we could go on. And then he begins this great tradition of uh, visual satire, um, which I think is uniquely British achievement. And, and it goes on from Hogarth to Gilray to Rowlandson through to punch cartoons and, and to the great cartoon artists of today, people like Peter Brooks and, and my current favourite, in fact, Cold War Steve. And, and all of that you can trace right back to Hogarth and certainly not to William Dobson. Uh, well, that's true. You can't trace all that back to William Dobson. I, I suppose even I have to admit that compared with Hogarth, Dobson was a one-trick pony. Bloody good trick, though, I must say. Um, <laughs> what can I say? Look, look, I, 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 I agree with you. In, in terms of impact, in terms of the width of his achievement, uh, Hogarth was a giant. There's no doubt about that. And I used to do a lot of stuff with William Dobson um, because I always felt he was undervalued. And whenever people said, who was the first great native genius, people always said Hogarth, because basically there was no British art to speak of before him. Uh, and I used to pop up and say, no, 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 there's William Dobson. And I will still do that. I'll do it to my grave. But I have to admit that uh, Hogarth's achievements across the spectrum are altogether wider. I love his sarcasm. Uh, I love his jokes. Although I think that there's something very British about this desire of his always to somehow cut everybody down to size. <laughs> you can see the modern British mindset in him, I feel, uh, even down to its jingoism. He, he pioneered a lot of things that I suspect have turned into sort of quite dark things in the, in the more modern world. Yes. But you know what I really like about him that surprises me is his touch, because even as a painter, which some people say was his least favoured accomplishment because he was basically a great sort of mind and a, a cheeky satirical brain and all those things but he couldn't quite paint as well as he could think some people say that but it's not true is it because if you look at some of his best portraits there's a great one in the Frick collection of uh, Mrs Edwards I think she's called a Miss Edwards and it's she's wearing this bright red dress and the dress is almost like a lily or something it's a beautiful flashing sort of silk dress and those pictures of his servants that are in the um, Tate Britain, you know, beautiful portrayals yes. Of, yes. of ordinary people. He, he could do all that as well. I suppose his only really big weakness, apart from when the jingoism goes a bit bad and it becomes too much like listening to a, a giant Brexiteer before the time, you know, uh, his weakness is religious art. He did a couple of genuinely bad frescoes and murals in, in various churches didn't he, and hospitals in London. But apart from that, yes, I mean, a fantastic presence and very, very, very British. Yes, uh, he certainly didn't like foreigners and he didn't like the French. And I suspect he might have voted for Brexit. Um, uh, but he would have been the funniest Brexiteer. He would have been the Brexiteer you'd like to go down the pub with. Um, you're, you're quite right about uh, some of his religious pictures uh, didn't work. And, and actually, there's quite a nice line by uh, the contemporary art historian George Virtue. I, I wrote down actually because it referred to um, one of his pictures Christ at the Pool of Bethesda um, he said as to this great work of painting it is by everyone judged to be more than could be expected of him but that in a way is a sort of forgiving criticism isn't it because it, it accepts that Hogarth was brilliant at everything else but perhaps just this one time uh, it eluded him but have you seen that one though have you seen the the Pool of Bethesda yes I have since the Bartholomew's hospital isn't it what yeah. it was what used to be St Bartholomew's it is absolutely awful <laughs> 
I mean, it is a dreadful bit of figure painting, dreadful composition. I mean, it's so murky and ghastly. And I think the other painting there is the um, Good Samaritan. That's even worse. I mean, he really, if there's one thing he could not do, it is the grand religious manner. Yes. I mean, he was awful at that. But you see, so the other side of the coin is that he used to do these really cheeky religious ones. I remember there's one of um, the chap that founded the Hellfire Club. You know, the Hellfire Club was that sort of society that's supposed to meet in a, some caves near High Wycombe and they drank and they winched and they were basically decadent. I think, I think the um, Brooks Club, isn't it, today was descended from the Hellfire Club. But the founder of it, Sir Francis Dashwood, um, there's a great picture of him by Hogarth in which he's, uh, he's turned Francis Dashwood into St. Francis of Assisi. Hmm. So there's this rake uh, kneeling in front of a kind of altar in a typical Francis of Assisi pose in this brown colored robe that he's wearing. But instead of the Bible, he's reading a pornographic book. And instead of holding a crucifix, he's got a nude woman there. So, it, you know, it, it's a vicious bit of satire, uh, but brilliantly done and, and fearless. I mean, that's the thing about Hogarth. When he had a go at you, he was fearless, wasn't he? Yes. And those fantastic pictures of elections, the ride through Finchley, Margaret Thatcher's uh, constituency to be and all that. I mean, it's just brutal, brutal satire. And, and I love it. Well, genuinely still quite funny, I think. I mean, uh, as a sort of art historian and historian, perhaps I think some of us are guilty of looking back on cartoons and, you know, punches from days past and chortling away. And it's really just us showing off what we know. But, but I think most people can look at something like the Rake's Progress or um, a harlot's progress and find little elements of them genuinely funny still today. Um, and it's quite interesting that even uh, contemporary cartoonists, people like Peter Brooks, very often when they're doing uh, cartoons for, for events in the news today, they'll often um, copy, copy a Hogarth composition and you often see at the bottom with apologies to Hogarth. And, and I think that's extraordinary um, how, how one man's wit and humour could have such an impact on on British art 100 years later. Isn't that amazing? Well, there were quite a few artists who always get pulled up in this. When the cartoonist does this with apologies to, it's either usually monks scream, sometimes <laughs> it's the raft of the Medusa, Jericho. There are about 10, of course, Leonardo's Last, Last Supper, there's about 10 images that they keep parodying. So I think most cartoons only know about 10, 10, 10 famous old master paintings. But um, yes, of course, Hogarth's wit. I mean, again, I keep going back to this idea of how there's something incredibly English about it. He just didn't bow to anybody. Um, and, and particularly if it was foreign and Catholic, you know, he'd have a pop at it, wouldn't he? Yes. And the, I think, I think I'm right in saying, correct me if I'm wrong in this, but wasn't, I mean, the Harlot's Progress, which was the first of those, wasn't it? The first of his moral stories. Um, I think it was a parody of, of Dura, the Dura's Passion of Christ. So Dura had this famous set of woodcuts of the Passion of Christ, where the Passion of Christ unfolded from, um, from the first tortures to his death. And then uh, Hogarth redid them. So he's mocking Dura at the same time as doing his marriage a la mode, which is a very British thing to do, isn't it? Yes. I mean, it's pure live at the Apollo, that kind of thinking. <laughs> well, he used to write under the pseudonym Britophil. Uh, attacking foreign artists. But I think, you know, um, as much as we might sneer at that today, you've got to consider the times that Hogarth was working in. I mean, in the 1730s, when he's beginning his career, um, apart from William Dobson, there really hadn't been a, a, a preeminent British artist. And there certainly hadn't been a British school of art. Uh, it seemed to an, an up and coming artist like Hogarth that the only artists 
uh, that all the connoisseurs and the aristocrats and the, and the rich merchants wanted to patronize were foreigners. Um, and it started with Holbein and it went right on through to people like uh, Nella and Michael Dahl and, and really not very good ones like Antonio Verio. So, so here's Hogarth saying, well, we can do this. Um, send all these foreigners packing. And actually, um, he's right. Oh, yes, I suppose so. But it does bleed very quickly into into some pretty pretty nasty jingoism. I mean, the, the Calais Gate, which is the famous painting, isn't it, of the sort of fat French friar um, in, in Calais, you know, um, we, we all know the story behind that, how Hogarth went over there and fell out and some policemen told him to move on. And I mean, it, you could imagine a bunch of, of contemporary blokes <laughs> going to France with their bottle of Watney's beer and, and falling out with the gendarmes in the same way and coming back and sort of taking their revenge in a similar fashion. I mean, there's something, um, I just I keep saying it, I'm sorry, but it's something incredibly British about yes. the way he reacted to things. There's a bit of Rigsby in him, isn't there? Yeah, the the invention of the, I mean, he did invent a load of stuff. That's what's brilliant. The, the whole of the, those moral stories of his, modern moral stories, where like the Harlot's Progress, the Rake's Progress, Marriage a la Mode, no one had done that before. Just mm. this idea of a comic, basically, isn't it? I mean, it's a sequence of events with little sort of bits of writing underneath telling you what to look at, but each one leads to the next one. So it's a graphic novel, if you like, but a, but a painting. I mean, he invented that out of nothing. He suddenly came up with it. So there is this brilliant range of stuff that he that that he that he brought to the table, and humour. See, I'm I'm like you. I I believe in humour. I'm against piety in art for the sake of piety. Yes. I think some of the greatest artists, even Rembrandt, had had moments of great sort of jokiness and yes. fun. Certainly Picasso, you know, Gauguin, the, the ones that we really rate, uh, Artemis Gentileschi, you know, they, they had bits of fun in there as well. Yes. But I think it's very important that. I think it's really important to yes. understand that you can be a great artist and a serious artist yeah. whilst making comic points. That's it, isn't it? Yes. And it's just like in Shakespeare, you can't really have Shakespeare without some of the comic moments. You can't have Hamlet without the, the grave diggers, you know. So you cannot have in art just the serious stuff. And Hogarth was a, absolutely a pioneer in that. And, 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 and it's another reason to respect him, I think. Yeah. And um, another, if I, could, if I could please say another reason to respect Hogarth, is he didn't just cock a snook at things. Um, he, he walked the walk as well. And I'm referring to his role in setting up the first ever a hospital for abandoned children in England, uh, the Foundling Hospital in London, uh, which he was a founding governor of. And he, he, throughout his life, he supported financially as best he could. And with his wife, they even adopted uh, children. So, so he put his money where his mouth is. Uh, and that was an extraordinary thing. And I have to say, uh, my final little sort of the peon for Hogarth is that I actually, I feel like I owe him an apology, Wildy. Do you know why? Why is that, Bendor? Because uh, the final great tragedy of his life was when he painted this uh, really quite ambitious and I think uh, perfectly good painting called Sigismunda, Mourning Over the Heart of Guiscardo. Do you know that one? It's in Tate, Britain. No, I can't picture it. Tell it's me. not often actually on display and it's, it's considered a bit of a failure. And part of that is because the man who commissioned it said to Hogarth in, late in his life, in 1759, he said, Hogarth, you're marvellous. I think... I want to have a painting from you. I'll name your price and you can paint any subject you like and I will accept this picture. And Hogarth took ages perfecting this, this picture called Sigismunda. It shows uh, the, the figure of Sigismunda um, holding the heart of her, her lover who had been executed by her angry father. 
Um, and Hogarth, uh, of course, this is the time of the great explosion of the theatre in London. Hogarth wanted to see if a painting could command the sort of emotions that an actor could on the stage. And so Hogarth uh, spent ages painting this picture and he sent it off to the patron in great expectation. And the patron said, oh, no, I don't like that. And he was quite rude about it, uh, didn't pay for it. And the painting became um, a subject of great criticism and indeed derision. And this, this really wounded Hogarth to the end of his days. And do you know who the person was who rejected the painting? No. Uh, Sir Richard Grosvenor, my oh, eight God. times great grandfather. Now, my family has always left a terrible mark on art history. I'm continuing this great tradition today, but Is I feel... Is there you haven't touched in art? <laughs> I Is there like nowhere it. the Groveners haven't been and, and messed stuff up? God almighty, Bendor, you are absolutely everywhere, aren't you? I'm sorry, Hogarth. I'm, I'm truly sorry. It's a great painting. Well, it's a good reason to finish off there. Uh, yes, so we're all agreed. Hogarth was marvellous. Uh, we, we love him. And uh, indeed, now that the museums are open, we can go and see him again. And that indeed is what we're going to be talking about next, because the next part of the show is all about our newfound freedom. Isolation. Yes, it's isolation, except it's not isolation anymore, because this week, the National Gallery reopened, and indeed a whole raft of museums have announced that they're about to open their doors again. So we're able to start going round the galleries in new circumstances to see stuff that we've been missing all this time. Exciting, don't you think, Bendor? Well, it is. Uh, but I have to say, I'm, I, I must confess, I'm suffering slightly from re-entry anxiety. I mean, my lockdown here in the Scottish countryside has been not entirely unpleasant. Uh, and I'm I'm quite antisocial at the best of times, so I, I feel a little bit anxious about going out into the wide world, but if anything can get me out there, it's an art gallery, and I'm quite jealous of you because you sent me a photo of you standing in front of the newly restored equestrian portrait of Charles I by Van Dyke in the National Gallery, and I did think for that moment, God, I wish I was there. What was it like? Oh, big. The equestrian portrait of, of Charles I is very big, you know, wedged in between the ceiling and the floor. You know, it, it looked as if it was uh, 10 sizes too big for the space. But yes, do you know what? I think I was, I think I was the second person allowed into the National Gallery um, mm. since they decided to reopen it. So I was right there at the beginning of, of, of the long queue. And it was a very interesting experience. I say interesting because it wasn't just going around the gallery, it was getting to the gallery. I mean, that was the weird bit. I mean, I went through central London, right? Leicester Square, Piccadilly. I walked from home, so I was feeling nervous about the public transport. So I walked there, took, took about an hour and a half, two hours to get there. And it was, it was like walking through one of those, you know, those sort of dystopian films about the end of the world where there's one person left and everybody else has started to live underground and they've all mutated and gone white you know, or turn terribly pale from lack of sunshine. It was like that. It was, it was, there was nobody in the streets. I walked past Hamleys, nobody there. Piccadilly Circus, nobody there. Leicester Square, nobody there. And then I got to the National Gallery. So I was really primed for, for weirdness. But of course, once I got in, well, it was home, wasn't it? It was absolutely delightful. Um, they've got these various interesting new rules for how you go round as well you know the n new things are, are about about your actual progress through the gallery so that's um quite strange they've got several journeys marked out already so no, when you go to the national gallery normally what, what do you do bendor 
um, I go to the Mondrum and look at the Van Dykes, and then I branch out. Yeah, so you basically you have a kind of personal agenda, don't yeah. you? personal route, which you can't do that anymore because there are these three routes you have to follow. And um, one, one of them is sort of compulsory first route. So you come up the stairs of the Sainsbury wing and you turn left into the Sainsbury wing pictures, past the Wilton Diptych, consider the Leonardos and the Duras and things. And then you can turn right again, go back into the main part of the old part of the gallery, and you can go follow a couple of routes. So it's, it's, it's a bit prescribed that way. Although I did get the feeling, I shouldn't really say this because the National Gallery would hit me over the head with a truncheon, but I did get the feeling that if I had I strayed a little bit off that route and headed into the left room rather than the right room, none of the paramilitaries there were going were gonna to arrest me and, and, and send me to jail. You know, it, it seemed relatively flexible. Right. But that could just be because it was me and they know that I know you. So they know that that's, that's a power in the land, isn't it? <laughs> if I know you. But, um, oh boy. So, very soon, everything problematic stopped feeling problematic because you're looking at the work, you know. Right. And, and, and because it was a new circumstance, I'll tell you what I found. I stopped to look at things that I don't normally stop to look at. It just they, they felt a little bit fresher or the fact that we moved a little bit into another room. You know, like the Vermeer was in a much bigger room than usual. And I found myself looking at it just from a fresh angle, you know. And um, artists who I tend for whatever reason, to, to usually just not pay that much attention to, I was paying a lot of attention to. Crivelli, Carlo Crivelli, the great Venetian painter. I love Crivelli, but I have in the past not stood there as long as I stood this time, staring at uh, you know, his beautiful altarpiece in the Sainsbury wing. So there was a sort of freshness to it, which um, was partly to do with the rehang that's been made necessary by having these roots, because it couldn't fit everything into the places it was before. And certain artists played in different ways. So the first artist that I came across who, who felt like they really somehow had a huge impact, they had a room to themselves, and they had a power because of the circumstance in which they were on show. Do you know who that was? Uh, no. Have a guess. Um, Titian. No, Titian was a Titian show. That was great. But Rembrandt. Hmm. Now, Rembrandt has always had a room to himself at the National Gallery. But this time around, you know, you come to him from the Flemish room. So you've seen Van Dyck. You've seen Rubens, you've seen that sort of happy and opulent Baroque art. And then you walk into the Rembrandt room and it's as if someone sort of slammed you in the chin, mm. you know, with darkness. It's so somber and it seems immediately to capture this thoughtful, rather sad time we've been going through. And it, of course, it's just my imagination here, but it felt as if our times were, were somehow speaking to Rembrandt's times or vice versa, and that the whole spirit of COVID was, was in all these worn faces, these poignant Rembrandtian portraits looking out. It just suddenly felt very emotional and, and impactful. So I, 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 I had a little weep in there and really enjoyed it. Mm. Um, but of course, you know what the, the big story is about the reopening of the National Gallery, the, the big new thing, don't you? Well, you have to wear a mask so people can't recognise you. No, no, it's not that. It's, it, I, I wear a mask so people don't know that it's me and I'm a friend of yours. It's, it's a way of stopping people <laughs> sending you more fan mail. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you can wear a mask, um, but no, there's a whole new room. You know, this, this room which used to be the Baroque room. Um, it's now this room devoted. It's been restored. It's taken two years. It's cost millions and millions of quid. And it's got the Caravaggios in it and the Artemisia Gentileschi's. Um, and the Guido Reni, so it's an Italian Baroque room. Okay. 
This is um, the, ha the Hans and Julia Rousing room, as we must now exactly. call it. Exactly. And you know yeah. who Hans Rousing is. Do you remember yeah. his story? Yes. And um, they've, they've paid millions for this. And uh, from the photos, it looks absolutely amazing. Yeah. But, 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 but Hans Rousing, there's a quite a notorious case a few years ago. Do, do you remember where they're both drug addicts and the wife died and he, he, he didn't report it and she was dead in the house for a few days? And it was all very sort of grimy and horrible and you just sort of thought oh dear me what kind of a life that this billionaire whose, whose father had made all the money in tetra pack yes. was now living this incredibly sordid life of a drug addict well that's, i don't know um, if sordid is i mean it's the tragic the tragic life of a tragic oh, tragic is yeah. as good a word sorry yeah. i didn't mean to be judgmental about it I, I was just trying to describe the sort of impact and the difference really between that past of his and now this new leaf if you like you mm. know where He's, he's turned over this new leaf and he put this fantastic amount of resources behind the room. Mm. Um, so, but it, it, it gives the room an extra something. There's a sense of redemption about it just in the architecture. I, right. I felt so anyway. Um, but it's a very exciting space and really took my breath away. So that was great. And the other really great room was, uh, who have we talked about recently who's, who plays really well at the National Gallery? British artist. Uh, Gainsborough. Gainsborough. The Gainsborough room has been adapted a bit, right? right? So you've got the painting that we love so much, the two daughters chasing the butterfly, yeah. right? But they've got a new one. They've got a new painting of one of the daughters, Margaret, which is just, it's a, it's just a recent acquisition. And she's hanging on the other side of the door. Have you seen any pictures of it? I have, and it was in the National Portrait Gallery's um, Gainsborough in private exhibition. That's right. Yeah. So she's, she's playing a theorba, which is a kind of lute. Um, and... It's unfinished, but it's a you know, the face is just sort of beautiful and sad, and it's, and because it's unfinished, it's got a sort of pathos to it. But she's the one who is at the front in the two girls chasing the butterfly. So she's the one that's about to grab the butterfly, and the butterfly, if you remember, in the Gainsborough landed on a thorn bush. So the idea is when she grabs it, she'll hurt herself. So it's it's like Gainsborough passing on this poignant message to one of his daughters about the meaning of life, really, what life is like. But of course, they did all have tragic lives. You know, Margaret, the, the, the one playing the Theorbo, ended up looking after her sister, Mary, who, who, who lost her mind, really, mm. after this terrible marriage that she had to an Austrian musician called Fischer. Mm. So music becomes a tragic thing in their lives because of him. And, and she becomes a tragic person because she ends up her life, you know, she just never gets married and she has to look after her sister who has, got, who has gone badly, badly wrong, you know, and had these terrible mental seizures. So... So this sort of happens across the doorway and it's just so poignant and, and Gainsborough gets me in the heart anyway, but this new hang uh, do, does that even, even harder. So it was all very exciting. Um, I, loved, I loved going around. I thoroughly recommend that you, as soon as you can, come down here and, and go around there, Bendor. Yeah, I've got this wonderful image of you going around the National Gallery on your own with a mask on, weeping, weeping to yourself throughout, throughout the whole place. What was it? But did it feel strange though? I mean, notwithstanding the wonderful gems we've collected in our own private museums from our on-the-wall sessions, um, having not seen a painting in the flesh for, what, two or three months, how, did, did the act of looking at a painting seem different to you? Or was it just like riding a bike and getting straight on it again? Oh, no. No, it was... I was super stimulated. Right. You know, I was sort of hyper-keen on the art. Yeah. I, I, I found myself mentally comparing uh, images that I'd perhaps seen recently on an internet screen or a computer screen and, and saying to myself, wow, because the real thing is so different. And mm. it's not just the quality of the painting, of course, it's also things like the scale of it. Mm. Titian is a good example. The Titian show, which I've 
for whatever reason, had cause to put various reproductions of it out in the, in the last three months. But when you actually see the paintings, mm. first of all, they're huge. So they overwhelm you with, with size. And, and that's one of art's weapons, isn't it? Size. And you, you tend to lose that in a computer screen where you lose it. But then the surface, that's the other weapon, the actual paintwork, the blobs of paint, when they sit there, they have a profundity that no flat screen can convey. Um, and then there is this, see, the thing I really noticed about the Titian show this time, because I saw it before it closed as well, it is the warmth of the flesh. And again, no amount of reproduction can convey how brilliant Titian was at capturing a kind of warm inner glow to humanity. It's something that Rembrandt did as well, actually. They, they paint flesh in such a way that it's not actually very sexy, um, even when it's nude women, or it, it, it's more to do with their, their humanity. So you can sort of feel the, the softness of it, the warm, the wrinkly nature of it. And, and indeed, because all these stories are about the stories of the gods, it makes the gods feel incredibly human. And the whole exhibition for me had this effect of, um, of reimagining the loves of the gods on a, on a sort of coronation street level. You know, it's as, if, it's as if they suddenly become ordinary and they have the same whispery emotional problems that we, the rest of us do, except they happen to be Jupiter or Diana or Venus, you know. But the humanity of it, the way he paints the flesh makes all of them, whether you're Andromeda or Europa, you become somebody very real. And that has an emotional impact to it that, that you just cannot translate to any kind of computer screen. So that for me is very, very effective. Mm. You see, I think people in your or my position, we, we're very lucky and we get to look at great art all the time. And I think we're, we're guilty sometimes of becoming a little bit blasé about it. So perhaps, perhaps an enforced art diet every now and then is actually quite a good thing. Maybe we should have like a 5-2 diet. You should have a couple of months off and then you can come back and, and look afresh at things. Um, well, I definitely need a diet. Uh, we've made that clear last week, didn't we? Yes, I need a diet. Not necessarily an art diet, certainly a, a calorie diet. Um, but on that sad thought, Bendor, well, you, you know, you've got me thinking about how fat I am again. On that sad thought, I think it's time to move on to the bit of the show that I really enjoy most. It's the fun bit of the show because it's on the wall. On the wall. Yes, in our museum without walls, Bendor and I have been assembling a marvellous collection of things that we can look at because we can choose anything we want to go on the walls of our imaginary museum. So boy, have we had a lot of fun. And um, that's going to continue right now because Bendor has a real goodie, I think, lined up for us today. Haven't you, Bendor? I have what I think is Raphael's best portrait. Uh, it is a portrait of a young man painted, I think, about 15, uh, 15. Um, it's uh, three-quarter length. Um, he's got one elbow propped up on a, on a table, which is covered with a carpet, because in those days, carpets were too valuable to put on the floor. And he's uh, fingering with his other hand a, a rather fine, sable-lined cloak. And he's looking at us very winsomely before a landscape background. We don't know for sure who the sitter is. Uh, some people have been quite convinced it's actually a self-portrait by Raphael. Uh, that's an identification that goes back to the 17th century. Certainly, artists like Anthony van Dyck, when he saw the painting, he assumed it to be a self-portrait. And in fact, he adopted the pose for his own self-portrait in about 1620. Now, unfortunately, we're only able to judge this painting from a black and white photo, because uh, at the, in the dying days of the Second World War, it was uh, stolen 
uh, or perhaps even destroyed by the Nazis. The painting uh, is best known uh, as the Tsartoriski Raphael. Now, have I pronounced that correctly, Valdemar? No, of course not. No, oh. not even close. Uh, Zs are pronounced as Hs, so Chartoriski. Okay, Chartoriski. Bendo Chartoriski. Chartoriski. Very good. Good. Okay, so uh, so called after that the Chartoriski family because it was bought in Italy by Prince Adam Chartoriski in I think 1796 and taken back to Poland along with Leonardo da Vinci's Lady with an Ermine. And the Nazis, when they invaded Poland, uh, they seized the Czartoryski collection. Uh, uh, for a time, it even went on uh, to Hitler's own private art gallery in Linz. Um, and fortunately, the, the Leonardo was, was not destroyed or stolen at the end of the war, but this Raphael uh, disappeared uh, from, it was last in the possession of Hans Frank, the absolutely awful governor, Nazi governor of Poland. And there's been all sorts of rumors about where it is and what's happened to it. Um, most people, I think, probably accept that it was destroyed somewhere along the way, so we may never get to see it. But the reason I'm choosing it for my On the Wall is that I'm going to magic it back into my gallery, and then uh, after a period on loan in my sitting room, I'm going to give it back to a grateful world. You see, I thought you were going to say, oh, you know, I found some great sleepers in my time, uh, Valdemar. And guess what I found the other day and bought, bought it an auction in, in, in Finland. It's the Raphael portrait of the Czartoryski Museum. I, I'm sorry, um, Valdi, I wouldn't be doing this podcast if I bought boy, it. Boy, did you disappoint me there. It's a fa it looks like a fabulous picture. It's interesting. As you say, there's only one black and white image of it, isn't there? Yes. And um, it's a bit like... Sorry, someone's had a go at uh, doing a colorization of it, and it's very unsuccessful. I think we ought to get someone like... Um, that, that great person, Marina Amaral, we, we ought to commission her to do a, a new colorized photo of it. Yeah, but it's nice in black and white. It's, it makes it look historic. I, 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 I'm surprised you have um, such a lack of confidence about it being a self-portrait. Uh, I've always believed that's exactly what it is. I mean, it looks so much like like the Raphael in the um, stanzas at the Vatican, doesn't it? The, the, that, that definitely is a self-portrait. Mm. And it's also got something of his um, portrait of La Fornerina, the mistress, about the way the face is done. But it's so fabulous. I mean, it, you know, all these stories about Raphael being so handsome and mm. a great musician and beloved by everybody. This, is, this chap, whoever he was, if it isn't Raphael, had all those qualities, that's for sure. And this wonderful sort of casual pose, leaning against the balustrade, staring at us, but just such a beautiful looking man. Oh dear. Um, yes, have you ever been to the Czartoryski Museum in, in Krakow, uh, Bendor? I've never been to Poland, I'm afraid. Oh God almighty. This is, you are revealing all kinds of lacunae in your, in your experience. You must go. And it's actually a fabulous little museum. And it's got, of course, as I say, the Leonardo Lady with the Ermine in it. And I think it's either there or in the Vavel Palace nearby. They've got the frame still of the Raphael. They do, so yeah. One of these museums in Poland, you can see the frame that it yeah. came out of. But that's left behind. But what a great, what a great loss. You know, Poland had this wonderful little collection of things with the Leonardo, a great Raphael, and the Rembrandt, and the Nazis just stro strode in and took it. Um, I mean, I can't tell you how much I'd love it if it turned up one day. Uh, you know, I, I, I got a, I've got a feeling it will. I, I don't see in what circumstances anyone would be stupid enough to destroy it. But isn't it? Is it is that film with George Clooney, Monuments Men, the one about the Van Eyck, the altarpiece in Ghent? Doesn't it pop up in that as well? I seem to remember seeing it burning in, in that. So 
it does it gets burnt at the end of that um, but uh, let's hope that's not a reflection of what happened because that is that has to rank as one of the worst art historical films ever made while we're on the subject i agree film. i totally agree it was absolute <laughs> rubbish wasn't it and such a shame but yes i think the raphael burns away in that it's it, this whole restitution business is interesting i mean there there's so much money in art now that i do i personally get slightly annoyed when somebody or other restitutes a picture that's you know has a dodgy past that way and then immediately they put it into auction and it goes for a fortune <laughs> you know when at least before it was on show in a museum somewhere and everybody could see it and now it's gone back into the vaults in saudi arabia or whatever it is so um i hope that doesn't happen to this raphael when as i confidently expect one day it'll turn up again but who knows because life is full of brevity isn't it and that's what my on the wall choice is about this week uh bendor so i've gone for uh uh, a painter who came from Bergamo. I chose it really because Bergamo was, I don't know if you remember, but right at the beginning of, of the Covid outbreak, Bergamo was one of the cities that was hardest hit, mm. Bergamo in North Italy. Yeah. Um, they had they had to lock it, out, lock it off before a lot of the other cities and it was, it was terrible what was happening there and I, I had a few friends who live in Bergamo who kept in contact with me and it was tragic, everything was closed, the museum was closed. Um, and I found myself thinking a lot about a painter who came from Bergamo called Evaristo Baskenis. And he popped up in my Baroque series that I did for the BBC. Uh, he's an artist who I love, but basically he's famous for painting musical instruments. So he, was, he had friends in Cremona, which isn't too far away. Cremona, of course, is the city of Stradivarius. Um, so it's a great violin city. And he, he painted musical instruments. That's, a, that's roughly what, what he did. And so he was pioneering in the sense, and his dates were basically um, 1617, I think, to 1677. So early part of the Baroque, but not right at the beginning. And he was one of the first people to start painting still lives in Italy. But they, he brought to those still lives this poignant set of other meanings. So the one I've, the one I've chosen here, like all his pictures, it's called musical instruments or pile of musical instruments. But if you look at it carefully, you see right, it's, it, there's a couple of lutes and then there's a, a violin and there's a cello and then there's a little box with some musical notes coming out of it. All beautifully observed, I mean really beautifully observed, but also slightly tatty. So if you lean in and look at the top of the lute that's poking out of the picture, you see it's covered in dust. Hmm. The dust is perfectly painted because no one's played it for a while. Oh. No one's played the lute. And the strings of the instruments are all sort of twisty and ragged because no one's tuned them instant recently. So it's a painting about the passage of time and about neglect. And it's, it's a melancholy painting about what happens, I suppose, when the music stops. And a lot of still lives with, with, that involve musical instruments have that kind of secondary meaning. Music is is both a great joy in life, but it's also something that comes to an end. And when it comes to an end, the sadness, the tristesse comes in. So I think that's what this picture is about. It's about, it's a kind of metaphor for life, really. Um, you come along, you have your fun, and then you go. Hmm. Uh, so that's why I chose it. Um, allied to the fact that, that Bergamo had this tragic story, I just think it's a poignant image that somehow feels appropriate for us at the moment yes it's a lovely picture i hadn't actually noticed the dust um can i just check are you teeing this up for another one of your songs is this is no, this, no no okay. no 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 i'm okay. foolish but not that foolish <laughs> that's coming out in the autumn the ep the isolation ep by the singing art critics uh, oh right well something to look forward to then um are you can you play the lute i mean you you're obviously a whiz on the guitar can you play a lute 
I'm the world's worst guitarist and I am an even worse lute player. Um, I can play everything badly, really badly, uh -huh. but nothing well, I'm afraid. Uh -huh. So I'm not going to pretend otherwise. <laughs> but I do feel I understand the whole thing about music. Because it does appear in art a lot, you know, there's all yeah. this Caravaggio lute players, yes. aren't there? You're talking of broken strings, there's the, the lute with the broken string in Holbein's Ambassadors, isn't there? Uh, on which yes. chapters and chapters have been written as to what that means. Yes, and I have a clear opinion about that, which I won't bother with at the moment because um, it would take me all day to go through it. But <laughs> it, yes, I mean, music, there's a sort of Shakespearean angle, you know, music is the food of love, play on. So music's a great thing. But the defining feature of musical instruments in art is that music comes to an end. Every great bit of beautiful music comes to an end. And that, that's that idea. Of, that's why Biskenis puts his things on a table right on the edge of the table. So the lute is about to fall off the edge of the table. The musical instruments are due to about to fall off. The, the actual musical score is on the edge of the table. You know, life is like a table. When you get to the edge of it, edge, edge of it like a waterfall, you can fall off. Mm. Um, so that's really the message of, of this picture. And I'm afraid it's slightly the message of this podcast because um, this is actually the last of our Wardian Bendies for this season. I hope we come back uh, in, in September. That's our ambition, but who knows? You never know with life. The music can stop and never start again. But uh, it's been a lot of fun doing it, hasn't it, Bendy? It has, well. It's been a great pleasure to see you smiling at me every week. Um, and I've learned a great deal. And Taya has been wonderful in holding our hand through it. So thank you very much to you both. And hopefully after a a restful summer will come back with even more terrible opinions about great art. Bendor, you're a gentleman. I've loved every single argument I've had with you. And boy, <laughs> am I looking forward to all the other ones we're going to have uh, in September. But anyway, from me, it's a very musical goodbye. And from Bendor, curio. Waldy and Bendy.